Welcome to the Caliber Podcast, brought to you by the Watchers of Switzerland Group. In this episode, Global Head of Watch Buying, Mark Tolson, meets with prestigious watchmaker, designer and historian, Dr. Rebecca Struthers. Rebecca talks us through her early life and career, her new book nominated as Radio 4's Book of the Week, Hands of Time, and her exclusive collaboration with Watchers of Switzerland. Welcome to our latest Calibre podcast. It's a series that delves into the world of watches, brands, complications, and the amazing people we're privileged to work with. I think I've said it before that um, it's the people in the industry that are probably the most fascinating. Um, and whilst I'm never going to meet Breguet, I did meet Gerald Genta once. I met George Daniels, uh, Jack Hoyer, um, and, and recently, more recently, uh, Max Busser. Um, and today, I'm really honoured to meet Dr. Rebecca Struthers. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. Oh, it's, it's, great. it's great to see you. So, Rebecca, uh, Rebecca was the first watchmaker in British history to earn a PhD in horology, hence, hence the doctor, which, um, which is quite incredible. Um, and we're going to talk about your life. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, your career as a watchmaker. Uh, with your with your husband Craig um, at Struthers Watchmakers, and also your your amazing book, The Hands of Time, um, which is a, a, a wonderful amalgam of, of memoir and explanation of of people's relationship with uh, with time and the history of science and art that's watchmaking. So, I'm really looking forward to this. <laughs> Definitely, yes, yeah. Okay, so welcome, Rebecca. So, um, can we start really with uh, with with your early life, your, your education? You're a yeah. bit of a nerd. Oh, I'm a total nerd. Yeah, uh, <laughs> born and bred nerd. Um, yeah, I suppose my background was not very watchy at all, though. Um, I'm from Birmingham, North mm-hmm. Birmingham originally, and uh, none of my family are in the industry right. at all. So I'm quite an anomaly within the family, or recent family, my historic family were mm. in the trade. But um, yeah, I just I grew up in as an inner city kid. Um, yeah, watches just weren't on my radar, but I loved figuring out how things worked. Um, and that's something that throughout my childhood, I remember I was always the kid tearing stuff apart at home, doing their parents' heads in, graffitiing books. Uh, <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I shared recently on my Instagram. Um, yeah, I was just obsessed with understanding the world around me. And, um, and that, yeah, that followed me throughout, really. And it wasn't until... Um, I was at secondary school um, and I ended up at a very academic grammar school and um, I I mean I always loved science and art and yes. to me naturally they felt like they fitted together but at school they're taught as these two completely different subjects yes. and if you're at quite an academic school it's all about the sciences because that's successful people do science and mathematics yeah. and mm-hmm. you know flowery people do art. Um, so yeah, I did. Um, I ended up for my A levels studying pretty much pure sciences, and um, yeah, I, I hated it. <laughs> I really, really struggled. I missed the creative side, and um, I actually ended up dropping out. So I'm a high school dropout, <laughs> Good for and you. Uh, ran off to art school where um, I started studying jewelry and silversmithing, and that was a national diploma course at the time. Really hands on. Um, I was really lucky to get through at the point that I did. So it's all practical. Um, and it was whilst making jewellery um, that I started developing an interest in making moving pieces. So um, whether that was articulation or really basic automata, really basic automata. And um, it just happened that the same university taught watchmaking. And some of the watchmaking students spotted my work and thought, asked me if I'd ever considered a career in, in the field. And right. Um, I hadn't. I uh-huh. didn't even know it was a job at the time, but I thought, 
yeah, that sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. And so I went and checked out their workshop and literally I walked in and, and that was it. I was like, yeah, this is what I want to do with my life. I found it. Um, because, yeah, watchmaking is that perfect combination of being both a science and an art. Mm-hmm. It's such a diverse subject and covers so many bases that you're constantly learning and it's constantly challenging. And, yeah, I love that. Yeah, I, I wonder if you are a little bit unusual in coming from a, a jewellery background into, into watchmaking. I, I don't know how... how divided they are as, as crafts i don't know I mean, it's obviously quite a good thing to appreciate either side of the uh, of the industry um there aren't many but then i suppose there aren't that many places now in the uk that teach practical subjects to yeah. a, um, a very high hands-on standard mm-hmm. um a lot of um so actually none of the courses that i took to get to where i am today still exist in the form that I took them in and the national diploma I took which was all there was virtually no theory at all in that it was all hands-on like how to use a file how to use a saw um that's all been replaced with more academic stuff so there's a bit of making a lot of writing essays and um and I think in that sense kind of the two really gelled well for me because there wouldn't really have been anywhere I could have started picking up these skills anywhere else in the country Um, and even now there's only a couple of places you can go to study watchmaking in the UK so I think for for me it was a really natural um, way in Mm -hmm. I think probably less necessary in places like Switzerland because they have a much better foundation education for for watchmaking than we do here Mm -hmm. I think yeah foundation education in that kind of making is limited in the UK it's it's um it does sound like a little bit like we're de-skilling from from those crafts but i mean we'll come mm-hmm. on to the uh, british watchmaking industry a little bit later but i mean in, in your book you talk with a lot of fondness about your teacher and i think he was you, when you completed your course that was kind of it and and he retired or something and he had a lot of influence on you and taught you the appreciation of, of metals that you use and everything i thought it's quite quite sort of touching actually the way you wrote about that yeah peter mm-hmm. um yeah i have really fond memories of peter he um he'd started his he was austrian and started his apprenticeship at 13 years old and retired the year i finished the course wow. so this is when i say how lucky i was to go through at the mm-hmm. time that i did that that's why so i had this incredible wealth of knowledge there supporting us and um and yeah, he was just so generous in sharing his skills and also sharing his mindset for his craft um, in things like the materials we work with that still influence the way we work. So I only make uh, watches with precious metal cases. And the reason for that being is if you're hand making something, so you are going to have to spend months making a case, you can't just run it through a CNC machine. You could hand make a case in steel that will only ever be worth a fraction of the price of gold, mm-hmm. even though exactly the same amount of effort has gone into it. So why would you devalue your own work with the materials you choose? You should choose the material that is worthy of your work and your effort Mm -hmm. because it is your time and you can't buy back your time. (laughs) It's a very poignant subject for for the subject of this podcast. But yeah, your time is valuable and precious and you should use materials that reflect the value and preciousness of your time. So yeah, that still influences the way we work. And um, yeah, Peter's still a huge influence on me, although I bumped into him at an exhibition a few years ago Mm -hmm. and um, I was like, Peter, it's so amazing seeing you. You know, like all, I rabbited off all these things of how he influences what I do today and um yeah he didn't remember me <laughs> it was like that great moment of someone who is so influential <laughs> in your life and like I'm really sorry I don't remember you I was like oh, oh yeah, 
okay. But um, now he's immortalizing my book anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, I remember you saying uh, you spent eight eight hours filing filing away at a case or polishing a case, and, yeah. and, and I'd take the point that you it's better to work in precious metal than, I guess, base metal if you're spending eight hours of your time, which, um, you know, these days it's difficult to spend anything longer than five minutes on anything, really. So yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, it's a real privilege. That was to fit, um, it was an octagonal band for the movement sitting inside an octagonal case. So mm. I'd get eight hours of filing two octagons to fit together. Um, but it's, it's a beautiful way to work, to be able yeah. to have the freedom to dedicate that much time to making uh -huh. something. Yeah, that's very true, um, and and I mean that that's it is a sort of marriage of, of sort of um, science and art, isn't it? That you that you sort of you got when you when you uh, when when you when you were studying. So tell us a little bit about your um, about your PhD because it's in a in a, in, a, in an interesting subject. Yeah, so yeah, I'm a, a time doctor of fakes. That's my um, <laughs> passion and interest. Um, and this all started out, uh, I after I graduated from watchmaking, I spent a while working at an auction house in Birmingham as a cataloguer. And um, a pocket watch came in. It was made end of the 18th century. Um, and it said it was made in London by a guy called John Wilter on the dial of sign John Wilter London. And I thought it, it looked a little bit unusual, but I didn't think too much of it. And as I started the cataloging process, I pulled out the dictionary of watchmakers that we use and uh, looked at the name and it just said, Wilter John, perhaps a fictitious name. Okay. And that was it. I was like, Ooh. right. Okay, this is interesting. Mm -hmm. So I started to do a bit more digging and found that these watches were something that was called a Dutch forgery, in inverted commas, um, despite the fact that they were thought to be made in Geneva um, and that they were signed with fake English names um, as being made in London. And for obvious reasons, none of that made sense to me whatsoever. So like yeah. a Dutch forgery made in Switzerland, signed as being made in London, <laughs> what? Um, and 15 years later, I'm still researching the subject. I just became so obsessed with finding out who, who John Wilter was and what this industry was. And it, it took me down this incredible rabbit hole of following um, these watches back through sort of 250 years of history, wow. and smuggling and, and um, yeah, forgery and... Uh, to understand how we started um, to reduce the price point of watches. Because um, before this point, watches were incredibly valuable things that took mm -hmm. a very long time for a master craftsperson to make. There were no cheap watches. Mm -hmm. And this was the start of that process of making watches and with that personal time accessible. It was the democratization of time. And it was over that sort of hundred years, it starts with these Dutch forgeries and ends with like Ingersoll and the dollar watch and stuff like that. Um, that you get like watches becoming suddenly anyone can own a watch now. And it's a really important part of our social and cultural history that and yet there was so little information on it. So yeah, it's good fun. <laughs> what a rabbit hole to go down. I mean it's it's interesting that you know, people were faking um, English watches, whereas most of the fakes are, are Swiss now, or you know, it, it's yeah. it's quite quite a quite a turnaround. Um, but yeah, interesting that that fakes were still a thing way back. Oh yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. um, and this was at a point, obviously, before we long before the internet, um, that makers, the, our idea of brands just didn't exist back then. So you wouldn't probably know the name of the maker, but you'd know that the best of this object is being made in this city, mm -hmm. whether that's glass in Venice or watches yes. at the time was yeah, in yeah. London. Uh -huh. um, so people wanted London-made watches. So it made sense to copy a watch made in London, but obviously without a maker's name 
required mm. for just a London-made watch to be more valuable, it was easier just to make up false names and pseudonyms, um, which is, yeah, is another interesting quirk of the story. <laughs> Fascinating. And, and, and all that... Um while you were kind of educating yourself and, and doing the, um, the, the PhD, you were, you were working as well, um, uh, you know, actually. So w- yeah. what are the other things you've done before you formed, um, you know, Struthers with, with, with or Struthers Watchmakers with, with Craig, you were, you were restoring and mm. that, that's, that's the, the things you were doing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was um, an integral part of my research as well as the ability to take apart watches and study them. So... I mean, for me, it's a really natural overlap doing those two things, Mm -hmm. but it's quite rare in research. Um, The reason I was the first and still the only person to do this is because generally watchmakers stick with watchmaking and researchers are researchers and you don't generally get watchmaker Mm -hmm. researchers. Um, But yeah, the two are inseparable. So for my study, I actually ended up in the basement of the British Museum. Oh, wow. um, And I was able to analyse 30 surviving examples of Dutch forgeries in their collection. Um, We put them through forensic analysis, XRF and X-ray scanning, and and use that to help inform the the whole research body. But I couldn't have done that if I wasn't a watchmaker and I wouldn't have had that relationship with the British Museum if they didn't know I was obviously an experienced restorer as well. Um, and yeah, for for the record, anyone interested, the horological study room is open to the general public. You just need to book in, and it's amazing. They've got four and a half thousand watches behind the scenes. So yeah, just wow. <laughs> so cool. But um, yeah, so trained in restoration uh-huh. um, off the back of jewelry and silversmithing, which is really hands on. Um, when you're working with stuff that's potentially a few hundred years old, there is no spare part supply, so you have to learn to make everything from scratch. Mm-hmm. So again, the jewelry and silversmithing yeah. skills came mm-hmm. in really useful for that. Um, and when we started our, our company, it was as a restoration company, and it was through kind of making so many parts for other people's watches that we kind of started to make parts for our own watches. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and um, I, you, you mentioned um, in, in the book about... Um, when you open a watch up and you, and you find the marks from a previous uh, repairer, um, and it, it again that that's that's sort of quite touching because it, it it sort of it brings a humanity into it, doesn't it? Really, yeah. um, somebody's treasured possession has been has been repaired, you know, fifty years ago or whatever it was, a hundred years ago, etc. And and it's still going or or will be going after you've kind of mended it. Yeah, yeah. it's such a special part of the process mm-hmm. that I mean, Craig and I are suckers for stories, so we're not about big brands or anything it doesn't matter if the watch is worth 10 pounds mm-hmm. or ten thousand pounds it's about how much it's worth to the owner is yes. the thing that gets us so it's the ones that come in with the story of how they've been inherited from someone's great grandmother and they've been told it's obsolete and there's no way it'll ever be repaired and you're my last chance and yeah we can never turn away <laughs> yeah. like that we're hopeless um but it's such a special thing and i think it's this this the wearability of watches as well as the kind of mechanics of them that make them so appealing because you've got this incredible work of engineering that's been crafted by human hands. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's both a scientific instrument. It measures something that's completely beyond our control. Um, The actions of the universe. It's it's vast when you think about time and yet we, it's our way of kind of, of externalizing it in a little machine that we can carry with us. But, by carrying it with us, it also becomes something incredibly personal. Um, we use it to express messages about who we are, our personal yeah. style choices, um, our wealth, our status. Uh, there's so much it can mm-hmm. tell us. And wearing it through our daily life, it picks up 
the signs of wear along with yeah. us. So mm -hmm. it becomes incredibly personal to us. So you get all of this coming together and as you're restoring them, and yeah, you find um, you find both uh, marks from the person who originally made them sometimes too, especially with the earlier ones. Mm -hmm. So kind of 17th, 18th, 19th century, the maker will leave little setup marks scratched into right. them to give you an idea or any further uh, repairer how to set the watch back up again as they wow. put it back together. You get the makers of later uh, repairers who'll leave the date they worked on it just in case it comes back to them. They know when mm. they last saw it. Um, and then you get kind of like, yeah, everything from personal engraving is a really beautiful thing to see, like presentation watches that uh, were gifted to someone back in the 1920s yeah. or 30s. Um, even we get watches come in for repair with like dents or marks in the case. And the owner's like, can you just leave that dent though? Because I did that on holiday. We had one... Um, a guy put a massive dent in the bracelet of his watch while scuba diving with his now at that point late father oh. and it was a really special memory yeah. of him being out on that holiday with his dad so he wanted to he wanted to keep that dent because it was so important to him yeah so yeah and you you become then part of the story of this object that yes. has potentially been around for hundreds of years before we are and will exist for hundreds of years after us and you're like you're at it with this little window in its history um yeah it's a special part of the job that's quite something fascinating. So what, what in the end triggered you to set up um, Struthers Watchmakers with, with, with Craig? Or, or we should maybe talk about Craig because <laughs> you, you met him whilst, whilst, you were, whilst you were in education yeah. and, and he's your husband and, and you work together. That's obviously quite an intense, well, an intense relationship. You work together and you, and, you, you, and you live together. Yeah. Yeah, he was actually one of the uh, watchmaking students who spotted my jewellery work and asked if I thought about being a watchmaker. So I'm kind of his fault as well. Okay. Although we didn't become a, a couple until a few years after we left university. We stayed in touch. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, so he's another watchmaker. Both started out with restoration. And um, yeah, we uh, we decided to set up um, our company together after I had a a few stressful experiences at work, shall we oh, say. Okay. <laughs> and I, I kind of got to this point in my career where I was like, either I have to give up and do something else or I need to get out of the, the way I'm working because it's no good for me. And Craig, who'd already spent a short time being self-employed, said, well, why don't we just get a business loan and set up our own business? thought okay so I didn't want to I wasn't going to give up so um that's kind of the running theme throughout my life I'm Tenacity. not going to give up Tenacity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. So I need to yeah. rethink this and mm -hmm. do it in a different way and um and that's what we did uh, we were living in London at the time and we moved back to Birmingham set up our first workshop because it was just no way we could have afforded to set up something while we were in London um got a very small business loan and uh started out with one tiny little room in the top floor of a place called the Big Peg which is a huge like a state of workshops um which had a lovely view but it wasn't an ideal space and tiny um and now we're like 11 years later in our fourth workshop okay. now we kind of grew a bit at mm -hmm. one point and then we've gone down to a bit of a smaller space now that works for us and yeah it's perfect um we started out so we didn't have a lot to um a lot of financial backing. We started out buying antique and vintage tools off yes. um, online auction sites mm -hmm. um, that were quite often as boxes of bits um, that we had to restore and tailor and customise to do the jobs that we wanted them because we couldn't afford anything else. And back then, the antique tools were a lot cheaper. Um, 
And yeah, as we did that, it kind of formed such an important part of our making process that now, even though we've grown a lot and we could start buying in modern technology, we still use the old stuff. Um, and yeah, so the tools we use to make our watches and restore watches are anywhere between sort of 150 and 40, 50 years old. Um, and they all have names as well. So they're like the extension of our workforce. <laughs> yeah, I was going to mention you, you'd name them. And um, I suppose, as you say, they, they don't make them like they used to, do they, I oh, guess? Yeah, <laughs> they're, beautiful. they're just beautiful things to work with. Mm -hmm. And I really love the machine making side of things um, for antique and vintage machinery, because even though you kind of you need the precision of a machine to help you make a watch, because they do need to be so accurate, these machines are also very hands-on. Um, you can't just set them up to run. You need to run them. You need to set them up. You need to constantly maintain them. Yeah. And all the all the action is by hand, but the machine is operating and doing the precision bit for you. And I love that kind of two-way relationship with them. Mm -hmm. like, um, yeah, you do. They're all characters and you get to know them. <laughs> they all have their own personalities. And... Um, yeah, we have our favourites as well. <laughs> is Helga? Uh, was it Helga? Is Helga, yeah, Helga's yeah. one. Of, Helga and Heidi are yeah. sisters. Okay. Um, they're East German ACLs. <laughs> and um, yeah, they came in as a pair. We've got Mouse and Spitz Mouse, who are another pair of six mil lathes. They're our tiniest lathes. Mouse is my favourite. Okay. <laughs> my favourite lathe. Um, Craig's is probably Heidi. She's a bit of a bigger lathe. Um, we've got our <laughs> 10 mil lathe. We use, uh, we've got a lathe, a larger lathe is used for case making, which is something we do in house. Um, and uh, that's called Barney. Um, after the guy we bought him um, the lathe from, uh, his uh, handle on said online auction site was Barney the Whippet. And Craig and I love dogs. When we okay. got so excited, we thought, right, okay, we're going to go and we'll pick up the lathe and we're going to meet Barney the Whippet. And we went to pick up this lathe and um, got there. I was like, oh, yeah, thanks for the lathe. Can we meet Barney? <laughs> and, um, and yeah, it turned out Barney had passed away shortly before. Oh. So we named Barney the lathe in Barney's honour. So Barney, Barney, our case-making lathe, is named after Barney the Whippet. So... He lives on in our workshop. That's amazing. Which, uh, yeah. yeah, it's lovely. But yeah, working with Craig is um, fantastic, actually. We're a really good team, which is lucky. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Obviously, I've never seen you work with Craig, but I guess there is a... Do you spend all day not talking to one another? Is it can be a bit like that, yeah. I mean, watchmaking is such a focused yes. job and you spend most of the day on, we literally work on a sheet of A4 white paper because it makes such a great um, reflector from mm -hmm. the light and you can make notes on it as you're working oh. too. So, yeah, you can spend most of your day focusing on an area the size of an A4 sheet of paper and um, it is all-consuming. So maybe that is part of it. We go for whole days barely no. exchanging words. Um and I think the other side of it as well is we have very different skill sets. Oh. So I'm kind of the, I'm right-handed and left-brained and his okay. left brain, no, right-brained and left-handed. <laughs> but we're kind of like, yeah, two sides of the same person. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm more mathematical and do a lot of the kind of design engineering side of things. Whereas Craig's, um, he's very dyslexic and very much on the creative side of things. Right. And our brains just seem to work perfectly together. So we're never trying to do the same thing at the same time in different ways. And I think that helps as well. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. It does sound like a, a yin and yang, doesn't it? Yeah. To a certain extent, which is, which is nice. Uh, and it's, it's, it's interesting because um, I don't know... Um, Obviously, I don't know what it's like being a woman in the watch industry, because uh, but but 
I don't know what it was like, particularly when you when you, when you were learning. Uh, but I, I sense that I sense that things are, are changing. I mean, from a from a business perspective, you know, the, the, there's a newly announced CEO of, of, of Odemar, um, mm -hmm. Ilaria Rester, um, and um, you have Catherine Rainier at, at, at Jaeger Lecoult, and then and sort of some of the hands-on um, watchmakers as well. Um, was it her name? Uh, Carol Forestier Casapi. Yeah. Um, who's the who's Cartier Complications and now now is at Tag, mm. um, so I, I guess there's some barriers being broken. But was it was it tough early on, particularly? Yeah, I mean I've been doing this now for my 20th anniversary in the in the industry right. this year, um, and it has changed a lot in that time. I think this industry has always had um, quite a few women, but they're generally they've been kept at more junior levels. So especially in the workshops in Switzerland, you've got a lot of women on production line work, but it's rare that they work their way up um, to become master watchmakers mm. or CEOs of companies. And um, certainly when I started out even 20 years ago, that was virtually unheard of. Right. I couldn't have named a female master watchmaker 20 years ago, even though obviously they were around, mm -hmm. but... Yeah, they're kind of hidden behind closed doors or still working their way up. Um, and that kind of, that does make things more tricky, I think, because you generally, you look for careers where you see people like yourself succeeding yes, in because then you can see yourself doing that uh -huh. in the future. Yeah. And when you look up and you can't see anyone like you, um, I think that does discourage a lot of people. And um, I certainly, yeah, I, it wasn't easy at times at university and... Um, wasn't always particularly mm. <laughs> welcome in the workshop yeah. but yeah things have definitely changed a lot since then mm -hmm. i think and the more women we have in these senior roles yeah. as well the more women at the very start of their career even before they're thinking about going to university will see this and think okay maybe this is something i can yeah. do maybe this is an environment i can succeed in mm -hmm. and that's so important to have those kind of ambassadors yeah yeah for sure absolutely um so we um we we should talk um, a, a little bit about um, about sort of Struthers um, as, as a watchmaking company and and obviously the Kingsley watch and and the and the two four eight which was your yeah. which is your I don't know your icon piece your 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 yeah. treasured watch. Yeah, we're kind of calling that our well the first ones we're calling our school watch. So two four eight. Um, actually, two four eight came after. So I'm going to start with okay. the tailor made stuff like the Kingsley. Okay. Um, and that came out of us getting to that point I was talking about where um, we'd made pretty much every part for other people's watches and we thought, let's have a go at making them for ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and we started out with um, case making and um, so that's the precious metal case making and using reclaimed heritage calibers. And we were okay. working in the jewellery quarter in Birmingham at the time and this was just coming out of the um, global recession back in 20, 2008. Eight, nine, so, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and gold prices just shot up. So everyone was scrapping everything, oh. um, including a lot of watches. Wow. And at that point, um, the movements, because there's no precious mm. metal content, were just being thrown in the bin. Wow. And it was incredible what was just being destroyed at that point. So Craig and I started going around all the bullion dealers in the jewellery quarter, buying okay. in sacks of movements. And we ended up with literally thousands of these movements, um, sat in drawers thinking, right, what are we going to do with these? And... Um, we kind of came up with this idea to start using some of these movements and turning them back into watches again. Um, and that's what became the tailor-made range in the end. Okay. So that includes watches like um, the Kingsley. Uh -huh. and, I mean, some of these movements, they're just 
beautiful beautiful like incredible brands some of them as well or even some of them that are just like independent makers from 150 200 years ago beautifully finished beautifully crafted they'll never be made again and yet here they are with bolt cutter marks through them and bent and distorted and being thrown in the bin um so we thought right okay we're gonna we're gonna bring them back to life we could have done the easy thing and bought some off the shelf movements but no we're gonna rebuild things that have been cut in half by bolt cutters um and yeah that that was the beginning of that so we completely stripped them back rebuild them remake and replace any parts that were too badly damaged to be saved um and that became the foundation of our our tailor-made range and then from then on we moved um into 248 which Mm -hmm. was us thinking okay well, if you want to call yourself a watchmaker, you're kind of going to make a watch, haven't you, mm-hmm. from scratch? Um, and we looked around us and all our old tools. We looked at Barney and Helga mm-hmm. and Albert and George and Mouse <laughs> um, and thought, well, what on earth can we make on this? Because this isn't cut out for <laughs> contemporary watchmaking. Um, and we ended up looking back at where the English industry died out um, in the late 19th century and found um, one of the last... Um, kind of machine-made watches in the UK. So we tried machine-making watches, but too late. We're about 50 years behind on it, and, yeah, it didn't work out in time. And we found one of these movements and decided to kind of half-reverse engineer it, but also reverse-engineer it with the mind of, if we'd have carried on the industry making this, where would we be today? Right. What contemporary techniques mm-hmm. can we include in this? What materials can we improve in this to bring this as if the English industry had just never con- died off? Continue, yeah, yes. carried on. And um, and that became 248, which stands for two watchmakers, our four hands and an eight millimeter lathe, which is like like Helga. Yes. So the majority of the, this watch has been made by those three things. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. That's an amazing story. I mean, yeah, the idea of, of, of movements being, being sort of disposable and thrown mm. away and, um, and you're rescuing, rescuing them. That's uh, that's quite incredible. Um, and. So some were literally cut in half, were they, or like? With... Yeah, yes. Wow. No value to them, and I and the some of the watches that were scrapped as well. People just so the, the dealers aren't watchmakers, no. and they're just buying gold. And yeah. uh, we've seen like Breguet movements, as in original, like where the cases have been scrapped and they've been twisted out of the case. And you just think, oh, if they'd have known, <laughs> that happens a lot less now because I mean, this that was working 15 years ago so there wasn't i mean i'm sure anyone who's been following the vintage watch market has followed just how much it's changed even in the last 15 years Mm. i don't think as many people would make those mistakes now but certainly back then there was no one looking out for that kind of thing especially pocket watches because that was who wears pocket watches well that's true yeah Mm. yeah yeah it's always a joy on the antiques roadshow when something like that crops up doesn't it i've I've had it in a biscuit tin for 20 years you know and it's amazing yeah Yeah. oh i love those stories i dream of having one of those stories one day but yet to happen to me (laughs) amazing um okay so um so turning turn to you to your book the hands of time which um came out recently um so what inspired you to uh, I mean obviously your 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 academic background and your research into the into the Dutch fakes obviously you 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 obviously write really well and it's evident when you read the book I mean my god it's it's, it's incredible so um so what, what what was the thought behind writing uh, Thank you a book? um 
well, I love I love writing too. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I, thought, I hope that comes across. It does. But um, yeah, I love I love the research side of it, and like with with my PhD, it's it's a really natural way to work. And I think all restorers, no matter what you're restoring, have to be historians to a certain level because you need to know how things were made mm -hmm. to put them back to the way they were made. So even if they're not writing it down, the knowledge is there. And um, the book um, actually came off that I wanted to write my PhD into a book and I couldn't get any interest and I, I spent years sending out proposals trying to get someone anyone to publish my book and um, yeah no interest too niche it's amazing how many people think there's no one interested in watches wow. I know audience <laughs> could wow. you believe it yeah <laughs> no, no. Um, and anyway I've pretty much given up and then a literary agent um, approached me out of the blue and asked me if I'd ever thought about writing a book and I was <laughs> like well yeah, but it's never going to happen. <laughs> um, and yeah, she helped me work on the proposal and just got it out in front of the right people. And yeah, that that became Hands of Time, which is, uh, it was fantastic. Yeah, and I've got my PhD's chapter five in it now, um, but it goes a lot further out. So it goes back sort of 40,000 years in human history to understand how we first discovered the cyclic nature of time and started measuring that and follows the, the ingenious devices we've invented over that last 40,000 years to to sculpt and shape the society we have today. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, um, it, it, it's, uh, it's sort of a, a, a marriage of your kind of life experience with the, you know, woven in with the history of watchmaking and you've got the glossary of watchmaking terms at the back. Uh, it even obviously tells you how to... How to uh, rebuild a watch, doesn't it? Which yeah. um, <laughs> I want to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd love to know if anyone actually tries that. Yes, yeah, so it's about ten pages long. Yeah. I give a really brief overview of the very rudimentary <laughs> basics of how to take apart a vintage watch, manual wind watch, and, and put it back together again. Which, yeah, I'd love to know if anyone gives it a go. Just don't do it on anything too valuable or precious. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, I, I, well, I struggle with IKEA furniture. So, um, but but I, I was once again once on a on a factory visit to to uh, to Jaeger Lecoult, and they had us all um, trying to um, reassemble a, a reverso movement, uh, just a manual wind, just a manual wind reverso movement. And I think I had more parts at the end than what I had when uh, when when I started. I you know I just didn't have the patience, couldn't see how it went how it went together at all. Um, and they were there helping us, but I, I was just hopeless, you know. But the skill and the dexterity and and uh, that you, that you must have is, is is remarkable, really. Thank you. Well, it is a lot easier to take things apart than it is to put together. As, as my parents will vouch for me as a kid taking apart toasters and televisions, um, I was very good at getting them apart. <laughs> I've only recently got good at putting them back together again. Sure. <laughs> um, well, I, you know, I, say, I, I, I can't think of another watch book. Uh, that, well, it's difficult to think of watch books, but it was, uh, but but it, I say, is uh, amazingly well amazingly well written you know and, and you mentioned you know the sort of 44,000 years I learned a lot in that you know there's a Le Bombo bone yeah. with a 29 marks on it for the moon phases etc um, all the way up to to, to, to the timepieces we use today I mean yeah. it, it's a it's a remarkable journey and, and, and it's a it's a human journey, isn't it? How we've marked time through the years events that the role that uh, watches have played in um, well I don't know, going to Everest or going to the moon or diving to wherever in, in, under the sea. Um, you know, it's, it's 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 sort of quite incredible, the sort of cultural aspect of watches, I think. Yeah. I mean, our understanding of time is completely cultural. Our cultural yeah. background defines how 
we our relationship with time and how we experience it, how we think of it. And um, you can see that in the way we've designed and made watches over the centuries. You can even follow religious strife and persecution across Europe mm. through yes, the, course, the 17th, yeah. um, 17th and 18th centuries through watches and craftspeople. Um, and yeah, revolution and war and the technical advances through the 20th century as well, caused by the First and Second World War. And um, they're just these incredible devices to to map our history through. And yes. I just find it incredible as well as we look to the future of timekeeping um, that the first timekeeper on Mars um, is a sundial. Is it? The, yeah, the Mars style. Um, oh. Yeah, so okay. it's, we're almost like looking back to look forward again. And I, I find that I do spend a lot of time thinking about this, about the future relationship with time, because yes. because our time, our understanding of time is very much Earth-based. It's yes. very human mm. um, and it's very cultural. Yes. So what's going to happen to time when we start traveling further out into the universe? I mean, time is already different on the moon and on Mars than it is on Earth. And the further we go, the less time as we understand it now will hold any relevance to us how are we gonna i hadn't uh, thought about that yeah yeah, yeah watches of switzerland on mars would be uh, would be interesting <laughs> <laughs> i know what modifications would they have to make to the watches actually a martian day is quite similar to is earth it? day so okay. in terms of our living with that that'd uh -huh. be easier but we'd still have to modify the timekeepers to unless we'd keep earth time yeah. To keep the yeah, communication. Yeah. Circadian rhythms and all that, whatever mm, it is. Oh, yeah. wow. So that will keep you awake tonight. <laughs> Pro probably will, yeah. But I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm clear enough to get my head around that completely. But, but yeah, I kind of know what you're saying. That's, uh, yeah, that's that's something else, isn't it? Um, and actually, you, you mentioned uh, just just briefly then um, about the um, about the sort of the impact religion has had on uh, on watchmaking, and I guess that goes back to. Uh, how Switzerland became ascendant in watchmaking, and mm. um, I mean that, that's worth exploring a little bit um, in the in the context of, of of Great Britain. And I mean we were we we were the leaders in the sort of 17th, 18th century with all those you know George Graham and uh, and all those guys Mudge mm. and and Tompion, um, and we somehow lost it, um, really. Yeah, failure to change was a lot of it. Resistance to change. Mm -hmm. um, so you had, I mean, the the perfection of mass-produced standardised watches was an American um, invention, yes. and it was Switzerland that were the first ones to really perfect this art of combining the standardised mass production with luxury marketing. Basically, ah. the two coming together. Mm -hmm. it, it was just a work of economic genius, really. Mm -hmm. um, and in the UK, we just yeah we failed to keep up. With that, we failed to mechanise. There was a resistance to the idea that watches would ever be cheap and cheerful. It's, mm. They should be luxurious things and that only the wealthiest can afford. And even our national institution, so the Clockmakers Company and the British Horological Institute, resisted change. You had people trying to start those kind of manufacturers in the UK and they were stopped from doing it because I thought it would damage our reputation in the industry, which, of course, I mean, it was, yeah, it was... Mm. A terrible decision in the long run, um, but we still—I mean, we still have a few bit British watchmakers around, but nothing, yeah, nothing like we used to. Mm. And yeah, the Swiss as entrepreneurs just nailed it. <laughs> but it's a curiosity and, uh, and almost mm. um, well, is it, when you think that that the Switzerland. Um, sort of attain that ascendancy and then i guess japan did did to switzerland what maybe switzerland did to the to, to british watchmaking yeah. but they recovered by making swatch 
a, a cheap watch effectively and, and they, they rose to the challenge, didn't they? And yeah. look at look at where we are now. Yeah. And that ironically, it wasn't run by a watchmaker. That was no. another entrepreneur exactly. who, who did that. And I think that's yeah. where the English industry failed is we didn't have an entrepreneur to yeah. look at it without the sentimental uh-huh. rose tinted view of oh, but the old English style will always win out. They had someone with it, right, this is gonna fail unless we do something yes. now. So let's do something. And mm. that that's where they succeeded, where we we failed. But yeah. it's interesting how industries go through these peaks and troughs yes. and they do naturally change and move centers uh-huh. through time. And um, obviously the, the industry in Japan is making, again, another huge comeback now with yes. some of the stuff that's coming out yeah, yeah. over yeah. there. It's just, yeah, mind-blowing. Uh-huh. I mean, we, we slightly worried recent, well, yeah, last five, five years or so, um, about the arrival of smartwatches and, and mm-hmm. what impact that might have on on, uh, on on traditional watches to, to use, uh, if I can if I can say that, um, and I don't think people I think people appreciate mechanical watches, particularly probably because of the the marketing job that Switzerland has done on that uh, done on on that mm. type of thing, and 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 people have two wrists. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's a bonus. Yeah, uh, it was like the quartz crisis version 2.0, wasn't it, it exactly. or thought to be. And, yeah. um, I mean, we found it really interesting, mm-hmm. actually. I think it's helped the traditional industry rather than hinder it yes. because it's got a whole generation of people who weren't wearing watches anyway, mm-hmm. wearing watches because they're smart watches. Yeah. And then it's not a long yeah. leap to make once you've started wearing the time on your wrist again to actually think, well, this is quite cool. This is a nice accessory yeah, to yeah, have. What yeah. else can I get? Yeah, yeah. So they start with smart watches and then start uh-huh. looking and investing in, in other types of watches, mechanical watches, other brands. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's introduced a new generation back into traditional watchmaking, mm-hmm. which is lovely. And yeah, loads of collectors I know have both smart watches and mechanical watches. The two are not, it's mm-hmm. not you've got to have one or the other. Yeah, yeah. That's the problem with watches. They're very small and they're very easy to store, yes. dangerously so. But, um, Coming back to um, sort of the state of, uh, of, of sort of British uh, watchmaking now, I mean, we had people like, um, well, George Daniels, mm-hmm. um, and um, we now have, we have Fears, we have um, uh, Roger Smith, we have yourselves, um, and um, all, I mean, I guess, the, particularly, I suppose, Roger Smith and, and yourselves, that they're, they're small independent watchmakers and, and I get I know you make like five or six watches a year is that something of that magnitude is it? we make less than that so okay. we make sort of three or four uh-huh. I think Roger's on about 12 okay. now last 10 or 12 well, yeah, so, so yeah huge yeah. numbers yeah, 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 indeed <laughs> but, yeah. but then on the flip side you've got Bremont who yeah. built this amazing factory and are making well the first people to suppose mass produce watches in the in the UK for I don't know 200 yeah. years whatever it is I, I don't know it's incredible that mm. yeah, so they do tours as well if anyone wants to go along. But um yeah, we've visited and it's phenomenal. It's really exciting seeing that level of watchmaking back in the UK again. Uh-huh. I'd never seen a facility like that outside of Switzerland and, and South Germany. Um so there is a real interest. Um and it's it's wonderful to see how diverse it is as well in the way we're approaching it, because you get people like us and Roger and Frodsham as well are another yes, one yeah, yeah, using yeah, some yeah. very traditional processes to make a very small number of watches right the way through to designers who are, are designing the watches in the UK and then working with other companies to make the components mm-hmm. to, yeah, your Bremonts who are doing, yeah, so much in-house now. They're not far off um, being able to make them complete in-house and on a much larger scale than the rest of us could achieve combined. So, <laughs> it's, it, yeah, it's, it, yeah, I mean, it, 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 is, in, it is incredible. Um, 
And um, I, I mean, I, I, I should sort of mention that you're kind of started work on a, on a watch for Watches of Switzerland for next year. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's going to be amazing for us. I mean, Watches of Switzerland started in uh, in 1924 in London, sort of importing Swiss watches and selling them. Um, so it's it's our centenary next year. And, and it's, it seems somehow a, a fitting way to kind of mark, uh, mark that occasion that we're having, you know, a, a deeply British watchmaker <laughs> ma- making something for us. So uh, we really appreciate that. Yeah, it's a really, really fun project for us to work on. So you go back to, again, as restorers, you go back to the 1920s and 30s, and that's just the peak for these really beautiful um, co-branded watchmaker retailer dials. And we love that. There's just so much history and story to them because they really do conjure that image of a, a smoky London street in the 1920s and someone looking in a yeah. misty window and yeah. seeing this beautiful <laughs> Yeah, we're, we're, Craig and I are massive romantics. <laughs> That's you probably gathered. Well, good for you. Um, yeah, and it's just such a beautiful era in fashion and design as well to play with. But it's yeah, it's it's a good fun one. This. <laughs> oh great! We're enjoying it. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I can't wait to see see where we are with that. So we we must uh, well we must see where we are with that again um, yeah. uh, uh, again soon. So on the sort of future of watchmaking, we, we well you, you mentioned about going to Mars, which was a direction that surprised surprised <laughs> me surprised me somewhat. We um, are privileged to go to the watch fairs, you know, watches and wonders over the years, and and it's um, it's interesting how. Um, how brands, you know, the, the, the major Swiss brands have, have got so much history. Um, and there's a lot of, um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to sound, it's not a disparaging word when I say reissues, but they are, they're, they're mining their rich history of, mm. of, of iconic styles and, and, and movements and, and sort of reinvigorating them for, um, for, the, for the 21st century, which I think, I think is fascinating. Um, uh, up, upgrading things and, and 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 you know releasing re-releasing products that were from the 50s 60s i mean that i suppose the 1950s was the was a, the era of the tool watch mm. and i don't know whether you've got any views about uh, what what we can look forward to i think things just get more refined more accurate more um more resistant to, to shocks etc i don't know uh, I don't know what the innovation is. I just wonder if you, from a watchmaker's perspective, what the innovation might be over the next 10 years. Well, we're so old school. We're kind of like anti-innovation. Part of me, I wonder, you do seem to see the industry separating off into branches and that's something you can follow through history as well. And I wonder if we're going to get more of the super high-tech watches will go one way and there'll be more of like the kind of craft making will go more the other way. And then you're going to get branches in the middle like with the sort of revival pieces and so on that will separate off in another direction Uh again. And you get this fragmenting. So once you get into kind of super high-tech stuff, how far can you push a watch in yeah in yeah. terms of not just accuracy but levels of complication how much yes. you can include um the more we understand about the world around us i mean potentially the scope for brand new complications we've not even no. comprehended yet yeah I, I whether or so. not they can be done mechanically or whether or not we're going to be looking at kind of hybrid smart mechanical watches and mm. Yeah, it's um, once you're into the realms of science like that, it that's into the yeah pure engineering terms. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's so much scope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think um, you know I think about MBNF particularly. I mean, they come out with some really uh, really amazing designs, and uh, you know they kind of break the mold quite a bit really uh, mm. these days. I suppose they're they're not alone in doing that but they are the ones that sort of spring to mind most most for me really yeah. in terms of challenging 
conventions in timekeeping, perhaps. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I can't think of a brand who's ever done a watch with a Martian time display on it as well. And if anyone's going to do that, <laughs> it might be them. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Incredible. So I think in closing, Rebecca, um, I want to sort of thank you for, for your time. Um, y- your amazing books um, out on Hodder and Stout and it's published um, already. Um, it's been Radio 4's Book of the Week, which I enjoyed listening to. Um, and, I, you know, I'm absolutely sort of, um, well, thrilled to thrilled to meet you. Um, and I want, I want to thank everybody for listening um, and, and people can check out our other podcasts in all the usual places and, and, and perhaps... Uh, visit uh, Goldsmiths Mapping and Web and, and Watches of Switzerland on their on their websites or or or, um, or in the actual showrooms. We're there to satisfy your horological desires. Um, and, and again, just my, my thanks to to you, Rebecca. I, I was sort of um, the, the, towards the end of your book. You write, watches not only measure time, but are the manifestations of time. Signifiers of the most precious things we have. So I just want to thank you for sharing these precious moments with us because I've, I've really, it's been a pleasure to meet you and thank you for your time and, and all you do. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Calibre podcast. We do hope you enjoyed it. Please do subscribe and listen to other episodes on Apple Podcast and Spotify.